So thank you for uh, worshiping with us this morning, worshiping our one and true living Savior. It's great, great to be here. If the sun is really bugging you guys, there's lots of room, other places if you need to move, nobody's going to say anything. Um, but thank God for the sun, right? We haven't seen this in a long time. So today is part two of four in our conversation about generosity. We're trying to imagine what generosity looks like when it's not just coming to us, but it's flowing through us as we have open hands. So before we actually dig into the text, um, into the Word of God this morning, there was a guy driving his pickup truck down an old country road, curvy, dusty, dirty, and as he was driving down the road, he saw two men off to the side and he was kind of intrigued by what they were doing. As he got closer, he saw that they were sitting there eating grass. So he, he watched them for a while. He pulled up closer and they inched up right to him, rolled down his windows and said, why are you guys eating grass? They said, we come across extremely hard times. We have no food left and we're very, very hungry. So he watched them and he, he talked to him for a little bit and then he thought, well, come on over to my house. I have a really nice home, lots of food, I can feed you. So the one man says, I'd love to come, but my wife and two kids are sitting underneath that tree over there. And the man in the truck said, have them come. And so they ran on over, they jumped in the bed of the truck. And the other man said, I have a wife and seven kids over there, what about them? He's like, come on, have them bring them. So they, so they jumped into the bed of the truck, and the two men were in the front with the, the driver. They're going down this road towards this house, and, and uh, one of the guys speaks up and says, man, it's so kind of you. You don't even know us, and yet you have so much generosity in, our, in your heart to make sure that we're taken care of. And uh, the guy, they had a nice conversation, and he said, you're going to really love my house. The grass is about a foot high. <laughs> sometimes what we think is generous is not. And sometimes what we never imagined as being generous counts big time. So I want to talk a little about that today. So here's the definition of generous that we're going to work with over these four weeks. We talked about it last week. It's, it's a, generous is a showing a readiness to give more of time, talent, and treasure than is strictly necessary or expected. So don't immediately just think money. It's more of your time, it's more of your talent, and it's more of your treasure. The Word of God has a lot to say about generosity. So we will be turning our attentions to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Now this passage that we are going to read is actually the single longest continuous passage in the Word of God about generosity. And we're going to read a big, big chunk of that together in a few minutes. But I want to give you a little background about this so that you will be drawn into what was happening here. So in these two chapters, Paul is writing to a group of Christians who were in Corinth. And, and he's telling them about 
his missionary journey, and he's telling them about the generosity of the people that he met in, in Macedonia. So you can see here that Paul, he's on his third missionary journey, and he's with Titus, and they're traveling around as they go, and they're right now, when he's writing this, he's up there in the corner at Macedonia, Italy's off over here, and then he's going to be writing to the people in Corinth, which has a, has a group of Christians as well. And as he's going around this missionary journey, he's, he's collecting money for the home church back in Jerusalem, the church where Jesus had been at, the church where the early disciples were at. And that church has grown and it has swelled and they have a huge reputation around the world. The problem is that there were, were some financial difficulties in the home church in Jerusalem. Now, now you got to remember that we're here about mid-40 B.C., so about 10 years after Jesus was crucified. And right about now, there has been a very severe famine that's going on in this community, and many people are hungry, and they're coming into the city of Jerusalem. But also, the church is being extremely persecuted. If you're in the James study today in Sunday school, we're going to see how in the book of Acts, how this church, this early church, was being persecuted and people were being killed over and over and over because of the gospel. But one core value that was more important probably than almost anything else to this early church was that they were known and how they loved people specifically as they were showing love and generosity to the most vulnerable people in that society. They had watched Jesus personally love the widows, love the orphans, the sick, the poor, those that were hungry, the children, and even some of them personally were loved on by Jesus. So this early church in Jerusalem was known for being the most hospitable citizens in their area and then around the world and even up in Macedonia and Corinth. They had that reputation. So before the early Christians were basically known for anything else, they were known for being people of generosity. And Roman society took notice. Tertullian reported that the Romans would exclaim, see how these Christians love each other? They were taking notice. And Justin Martyr, he sketched Christian love in this way. Let me read it to you. We used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything. We, 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 we bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. Acts chapter 2. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now because of Christ, now because of Christ, we live together with such people and we pray for our enemies. They were affected at the heart level. Their lives were changed because of Christ. So while all this was going on in, in the Jerusalem area, at the home church, they were still loving people. They are still being generous, generous, and they were spinning off churches all throughout that area that we saw on the map. Thousands of miles away, they were spinning off these new, these new healthy churches. 
And they weren't just spinning them off. They were supporting them and they were funding them and they were, and they were loving on them and they're sending their people there to be with them. But after a while, hardship caught up with them. And they were strapped. The needs kept piling up. So as Paul went from church to church, he's saying, can you help? Do you have a way to help these people? Your home church? And what he found on his journeys was generosity that blew his mind. So I want to ease, have us eavesdrop on this conversation, on this letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, encouraging them, a church that was more well-off financially, encouraging them to do the same, and not just the same, but even more. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 um, Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. It's such a long passage today. We're not going to read it to, together out loud. I'm going to read it to you. But I would lo I'd love for you to follow along in your own Bible. If not, I'll have it up on the screen. I'll be reading out the NLT. And I would love for you to stand in honor of God's word as we read it. And then let me, as, as you stand, let me pray for the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes and our ears and our heart as we hear this, these words. So Father, we're going to read an extended passage passage on generosity. God, you've given us an example here that is so real and palatable. May, may it encourage us to give, but most of all, may it encourage us to dig into you even more. So Holy Spirit, work mightily here in these words, in the lives of these people. We pray in your name. Amen. So 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more, and they did it out of their own free will." They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped for, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, in your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, I want you to excel also in the gracious act of giving. I am not commanding you to do this. I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Here's my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year you were the first who wanted to give, and you were the first to begin doing it. Now you should finish with what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your, your giving should make your life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. 
Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. As the scriptures say, those who gathered a lot had nothing left. And those who gathered only a little had enough. So now jump over to verse, chapter 9. And we're going to read 15 verses there as well. I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem, for I know how eager you are to help, and I have been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you in Greece, who were ready to send an offering a year ago, in fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. But I am sending these brothers to be sure you really are ready, as I have been telling them, and that your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all I had told them. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your own heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. We talked about that last week. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they, shall, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Thank God for this gift. Too wonderful for words. That's a reading of God's holy scriptures. Please take a seat. <clears throat> Paul is like, you have to get a load of these believers and the example of what they're setting. But most of all, you have to get a load of God and what God is doing through their lives. And I could park it in these two chapters for all four weeks of this series. There's, there's so much here, but I'm not. Our main point today is this. Being generous is not about the wallet, but about the heart. Say it with me. Being generous is not about the wallet, but about the heart. It doesn't matter what you have in your bank account. It doesn't matter where, what your salary is or what your, is in your portfolio. That does not determine whether or not you can be generous or not. Generosity is not determined by wealth or the lack thereof it. But what God is doing in your heart, 
what God is doing in my heart, what God is doing in the congregation here, this local body. So remember in our conversation, we are not only looking at, at being generous with, 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 with our money, but with our time and our talent as well. Do not forget that. Don't stick there. So let me just, let me just push that, that, this whole idea a little bit. Sometimes being generous can even be more challenging with the more stuff that we have. Amen? It's kind of like an oxymoron, but it's true. Many of us come to the place where maybe when I get over this hump, or maybe if we round this corner, or, or if this particular need is met, or, or as long as we get the kids through school over here, or after we pay off the car over here, then after those things are done, then we can become generous. And then we can use our time and our talents and our money. We assume once we achieve, once we acquire, once we accumulate a certain degree of wealth, when we have more time, when, when the kids get older, or, or when we hone that specific talent, then we can become generous. That is not how the kingdom of God works. Often the more stuff we have, the more challenging it is to actually let go of it and become generous. So here, here's an example of what I'm talking about. Let's say you're moving into a new house, okay? We've all done that numerous times. And this particular house has more rooms than you need. Does that room just sit empty? No, you need to put a bed in there. And you can't just have a bed, you need to have a chair in the corner. And then next to that chair, you need to have a, light, a lamp so that you can maybe sit in that room. Or if somebody comes over, they can sit in that room and then read. And then you've got the wall and you need a picture on that wall. And, and, and we didn't even previously need that room. And now it's full of needs. The more stuff we have, the more prone we are to believe we need the stuff that we have. Am I making it through to anybody? We live in a time in history where we have more stuff than ever before. Researchers have given it a name, America's Clutter Problem. The more you have, the more prone you are to believe you need what you have. We get drugged into this vortex called the, the myth of scarcity. I would like to do this extra something for somebody, but now I have to get a lamp. And I have to get a picture for the wall. Because we, we budget in a certain way, and budgeting is good. So here's our expendable income. And it's kind of soaked up this month. Oh, and next month too, because we have other goals. And we can't do what we want or be generous. It all goes back to what we talked about last week. If you haven't listened to last week's message, I encourage you to do so. Do we believe in a God that is generous? Or do we believe in a God that is scarce? Scarcity. There's only so much love available. There's only so much gifts, so much grace, so much beauty in the world. And God keeps it in a tight, closed fist. 
And if we can pry God's fist open, maybe a little bit of blessing will pour out on my life. Or if maybe if I work hard enough or pray hard enough or go to church enough, maybe this blessing will pour out on my life. And when I do get the blessing, instead of keeping my hands open, I clinch it. And I hold on to that blessing. Now, none of us would say, oh, that's my life. But do you live that way? If you seriously sat down and evaluated your life, or maybe even a better thing, have somebody else evaluate your life, maybe somebody from a third world country, and evaluate your life, what would they say? Or do we believe and live in a way that God created the world like we talked about last week and out of his generosity he lavished the love of his, of his son and him all over the world and he poured it on us so that we could be generous. So much grace, so much love, so hard to find all the words to describe this blessing of God that this God of abundance, he never runs dry. He keeps filling us over and over like this illustration we had last week. Yes, we believe it, but do we live it? Oh, when I get older. But now, do we live it now? The myth of scarcity says the more you have, the more stuff you have to have, and then you have to match that stuff and hold on to that stuff. And now our expendable income is down. Our time is full. We haven't honed our talents, and we'd love to be generous. We have big hearts, but I just can't do it now. But did you catch verse 15 of chapter 8? Verse 15 of chapter 8. Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had what? Enough. So if you're following along in your Bible... You will note that this verse is either off-centered or it has a, a quotes around it. Or maybe it's in italics. This is because it's a reference to an Old Testament passage. It's a reference to the story in Exodus chapter 16. The people of Israel had come out of Egypt. And they were in the wilderness. And they were complaining. And they were hungry. They did not have much of anything. And because God seen them in the wilderness, he reaches out to Moses and he says, I will provide for their need of hunger and thirst. And these are the instructions that I am going to give the Israelites. Verse 16, verse 4 and 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, look, I'm going to rain down from food, food from heaven for you. Each day the people can go out and pick up as much as food as they need for that day. I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, that's the day before the Sabbath, they will gather food, and when they prepare it, there will be twice as much as usual. Take all you need, but don't store any for the next day. It's kind of like we told our kids growing up. Take what you want, but you will eat what you take. So day one came. Just like God promised, manna rained down from heaven. So much manna that, that some people grabbed just a little bit extra to put aside. Out of the fear that maybe God won't do this again tonight. So they grabbed this extra manna and they put it in little containers. And listen to what happens next. 
But some of them didn't listen. And they kept some of it until morning. By then it was full of maggots and had a terrible smell. Moses was very angry with them. As if God is saying, that's the image. That is what it looks like to me when you don't trust that I will provide. I mean, overnight these maggots destroyed what these people had clapped onto. I put some maggots and a piece of meat on Tuesday, and I couldn't even get enough to show you today. They just didn't grow that fast. Now, in the summer and the heat, they will. But God is this, this is what it's like in my eyes when you don't trust me every single day for my provisions. At the heart of generosity is a call to trust. At the heart of generosity is a call to trust the day-by-day provisions of God's grace in your life. Oh, but I need to know what's going to happen in the future. Yes, we have to plan and prepare, but we've got to trust That is why the Macedonians were able to give away way beyond their means. Even though they were very poor, they were able to give. Here's why. Because they knew the only thing they had was the grace of God to get them from morning to evening, from morning to evening, from morning to evening, and then on the sixth day, from morning through a whole day to the next. This allowed them to hold what they had with loose fingers. So when any of us realize that anything we have is because of God's grace, it allows us to hold what we have with a looser grip, hopefully even with an open hand, as I've been talking about. So I want to keep asking this question through this series. What type of God do you believe in? Because do you believe in a God that will provide your needs, or do you believe that you are on your own? You believe that God is a stingy God or that he's God's going to pour out his resources on you? Because the God who is the God of Scripture, the God who is the Father of Jesus, who, by the way, had nowhere to lay his head at nights, that God who takes care of them, who takes care of me, will supply all your needs according to his what? Riches. His glorious riches, which was given in Christ Jesus. If you have Jesus, you are rich. And the Macedonians believed it. But, do you know why else they were able to give generously? And to allow God's generosity to flow through them, even though they had nothing? Verse 8, verse 5, chapter 8, verse 5 is a key here. They even did more than we had hoped. For their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to. Before they had even given a dime to the collection, they had to give themselves to the Lord. So let me say this as candidly as I can and as clearly as I can. If you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, keep your money. Spend your time how you want to spend your time. Use your talents how you want to use your talents. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God desires more from you. Is that clear? I know a church that would use these words before they gave the offering every Sunday. If you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, don't put the money in the plate. 
And they repeat that every single Sunday. Because what you have to deal with first is that God wants you. He wants all of you. He wants all, with me, all of me. And then out of that life that has been given completely to Christ, we can be generous. And God's going to bless it. And God's going to use it. So I want you to think about that. Every time that you give your money, give your treasure. I want you to think about that. Every time that you make a decision how you're going to spend your time. Every time you have an opportunity to use your God-given talents. Instead of being filled with anxiety and guilt of, oh, how much should I give, or what's this going to look like, or, or do I have time to do this? Wipe that off your mind and say, have I given myself first? All of it. So we haven't seen one of these in a while. We're given the boxes like Kelvin talked about at the back. But I want you to see this picture. I want this picture to burn in your mind that God wants you first, all of you, before your money, before your time, before your talents. Whoa. God wants all of you. Burn it in your mind. It's a picture of being fully surrendered to God and all that you do. If that's not your case, if you've never given fully to Christ, I pray that this morning you will. That's why the Macedonians could give. Because they have given themselves to Jesus Christ first and foremost. And then they saw that Jesus' church had a need. And they're like, we want to be part of this. Why would we miss this? And they gave what they could without any guilt, without anything else. So it reminds me of an older couple that I visited once. They were both in their 90s. They were not able to attend church anymore because they were very immobile. They lived in a very small home, and they had very meager resources. Had a great visit with them. And I was about getting ready to leave, and the husband leaned over to his wife and said in a whisper, but it was more of a stage whisper, Honey, go get him the money. She got up with her walker. She walked into the back room, and she was gone for like 20 minutes. And I'm thinking to myself, this is not happening. I don't want to be the guy that comes over to somebody's house, and people think, give them the money. They didn't have much. So she comes back about just a couple minutes later. She's in her walker, and she's holding out a $20 crinkled up bill. And this is what she said. Pastor, this is for our church. This image of one of our matriarchs with her walker holding out $20 will never be forgotten by me. But what impacted me the most, more than even that picture, is what she said. This is for our church. Our church. Never underestimate the power of our. Not mine, not yours, our. And this is what was happening with the Macedonian church. They begged again and again so they could be part of this because they have given all themselves to the Lord. And then they wanted to give. 
and do what God wanted them to do. So in that moment for Paul, when he collected money for the Macedonians, and as I accepted this gift from the old couple, it wasn't about the money, it wasn't about the wallet, not even about my own anxiety of taking it. It wasn't about any of that. It was about the hours, which was given eagerly, just as Paul was encouraging the Corinthians to do. This couple was so captivated by the love of God, how could I not be part of that? And after she said, this is for our church pastor, she added this. We can't come anymore, and it frustrates us big time. But I hear there's a lot of little kids in the church. Take this money and use it how you feel best. And I looked at her, and I said, I said, Thank you for giving generously to our church. I'm glad you asked me. It's not about the wallet. It's about the heart. That's why in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, we hear these words, you must decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give it reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. So this word cheerfully, there's so much. I did a sermon on it a few years back. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Greek word. But it's a word that means joyful, cheerful, not grudgingly. It's the same root word we get our word hilarious from. God loves a hilarious giver. Oh, get a load of this. I have an opportunity to join what God is doing. Is there anything better? But it comes out of a heart that is fully yielded to him. Being generous is all about the heart. Nothing new for a lot of us. But we've got to take a double take and say, is my life reflecting that? So this morning, we turn to communion. We do this once a month here at FBC. We do it so we remember what Christ has given and done for us. So don't put your notes away yet. I'm sorry. Because I want to draw our attention to verse 9 of chapter 8. It's going to set up communion in a beautiful way. In the middle of the instructions to the Corinthian church about being generous, Paul drops this theological gem. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he would could make you rich. So in this verse, there's five things, very short, of what Jesus did for us through his generosity. First, we learn that Jesus was rich. Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, God the Son, lived in the splendor of heaven. He was surrounded by the constant glory and the majesty and the power of God. These things are more than any wealth. Jesus was the richest man alive because of who he was. Jesus was rich. But secondly, he became poor according to this verse. Think about the nativity scene. The newborn king was not born in a gold-plated bed. He was, in a, he was in a feeding trough in a stable. He lived humbly, very similar to most young boys at that time. He was a refugee his first couple of years. When he died, he didn't even have a grave. 
Jesus became poor. He was rich, and he became poor. But third, notice the manner of his poverty. Notice it doesn't say he was made poor, but he became poor, right? It was completely voluntary on his part. He became poor by giving up his rights as God, and he became man. In his incarnation, God voluntarily became man. He became poor. He wasn't made poor. Fourth, see his reason for this poverty. Yet for your sake, for my sake, he became poor. There was a compelling reason that Jesus became poor. It wasn't his sake, but our sake. There's that hour again. But finally, look at the result of his poverty. So that by his poverty, he could make you what? What's it say? Rich. So by his poverty, he could make you rich. Because Jesus emptied himself out, come in man, lived a perfect life, taken on human form, and most importantly on the cross, he opened up his hands as we talked about last week, and he gave himself willingly so that you and I could become rich. We, as soon as we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have the full rights to eternal riches. And it happens immediately because Jesus became poor for our sakes. So we are rich if we are followers of Jesus. This should excite us. Not because of anything we have done, but because of him. And what he accomplished in his life, death and resurrection. We just need to believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus is who he says he is. And then make him Lord of our lives and we will be rich. And then we can, we can change this, this verse and we can make it into first person. Can you flap the next one up, please? If you know Jesus as your Savior, read this with me. I know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for my sake he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make me rich. Amen? Where does generosity come from? The poverty of Jesus and the richness of Jesus poured out for you and I. Now, some of you in here this morning don't know that richness. You don't know Jesus Christ in that way. This communion table is for the family of God. But it's a great opportunity for you to evaluate and say, what is keeping me from a relationship with Jesus Christ? So I ask that you do that. Think about your relationship with Jesus. And if you're at that point where this morning you say, I want to give my life to Jesus, do it today. Whisper in your heart, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. Sinner. And I know that you were rich, you became poor for my sake. And I give you my life. I give you my heart, all of it. And Jesus at that moment, if you truly believe it, makes you a child of God. And you become the richest person in the world. So that's what we celebrate at communion.